0: Welcome. You are listening to AfterSight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, February 23rd, 2024 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, 14 surprising things about aging from WebMD and how much Advil is too much from The New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. 14 Things No One Tells You About Aging. Medically Reviewed by Sabrina Felson, MD, from WebMD. One, lots of know-how. They're called the golden years for a reason. Getting older has its perks. For one, you're good at using what you've learned. This is called crystallized intelligence, and it keeps getting better even when you're 65 or 70. Two, Mr. Nice Guy. Turns out you might not be a grumpy old man or woman after all. You'll probably get more agreeable as you age, at least through your 60s. You're also likely to be happier and less inclined to get angry. Scientists haven't figured out exactly why this happens, but they do have some theories. Older people might control their emotions better and focus more on how to make the most of life. Three, play well with others. You are more in tune with other people's emotions in your 40s than at any other time in your life. That insight into how others think and feel can make living with your loved ones easier and help you get along better with your co-workers, too. 4. Better Sex Older women may have sex less often than when they were younger, but apparently they make it count. In a study of women 40 and over, researchers found that sexual satisfaction improved with age. Women over 80 were more likely than those between 55 and 79 to say they were satisfied during sex. Number five, a taste for life. As you age, medications, illness, colds, flu, gum diseases, etc., and allergies, all can change your sense of smell and taste, and that can affect your diet and health. If you find things need to be spiced up, try some olive oil, herbs like rosemary and thyme, garlic, onion, peppers, or mustard. Just stay away from the salt. Number six, what's that doing there? Around the time the hair on your head starts to disappear, it can show up in the strangest places. This can mean large hairs in older guys' noses and ears. Older women may notice small hairs on their chins. This is all caused by changes in our hormones. Number seven, rise and shine. There's a good chance you'll become the morning person you've always wanted to be in your 60s. Our sleep patterns can shift as we age, so we get sleepier earlier and wake up earlier. That seems to work out well. One study showed that even though folks over 65 tend to wake up during the night, most said they regularly get a good night's sleep. Number 8. Bye-bye migraines Once you hit your 70s, those migraines you may have had much of your life may go away. Only 10% of women and 5% of men over 70 still report migraines. Even better news, if you do have a migraine, it may not actually come with the headache. As people age, some may experience migraines as visual or sensory disturbances without pain. Number 9. Don't Quit Your Day Job Early retirement might not be the best thing for your health unless you have a fun second career. A study called the Longevity Project found that people who work hard at a job they enjoy live the longest. That, along with good friends and a good marriage, could be the key to sticking around for a while. Number 10. Fear is not your friend. You may worry more about breaking bones as you age. One study found that about a third of adults over 65 have that fear. And it's understandable because falls are the leading cause of injuries for older people. Number 11. Self-confidence. Self-esteem soars, as you age, studies show, and increases with wealth, education, good health, and employment. But it takes a dip after 60. That may be because people begin to have health issues and start searching for a new sense of purpose following retirement. With increasing lifespans, healthier lifestyles, and working to an older age, we may see that change. Number 12. Less Stress Baby boomers and older adults report less stress than their younger counterparts, according to the American Psychological Association's Annual Stress in America Report. That doesn't mean it goes away. Health and money problems still crop up, But the APA says 9 of 10 older adults say they're doing enough to manage it. Number 13. Weight of the World The longer you're alive, the more gravity brings you down. The spaces between the bones in your spine, called vertebrae, get closer together. That can make you about an inch shorter as you get older. Number 14. Strength in Numbers The graying of America may be a good thing for you, Those 60 and over tend to cast ballots more than any other age group, and they're the fastest-growing block of voters in the U.S. these days. That means more voting power on topics that matter as you age, such as Medicare, Social Security, and health care. Up next, how much Advil is too much? Ibuprofen can be a blessing for those with aches and pains, but overdoing it poses serious risks by Melinda Wenner-Moyer from the New York Times. And this is in question and answer format. Question, I take Advil pretty regularly for pain, but how can I tell if I'm taking more than is safe? Answer, headaches, fevers, period cramps, back pain, these are all symptoms that can be treated with ibuprofen, a drug better known by one of its brand names, Advil. Given the drug's broad pain-reducing effects, excellent safety profile and availability over-the-counter, it's no surprise that some people pop the little brownish-red tablets whenever they feel the slightest twinge of discomfort. It's my go-to when I have pain, said Candide Saronis, a professor of clinical pharmacy at the University of California, San Francisco. Still, ibuprofen, which is also sold under brand names like Motrin and Nuprin, can pose certain health risks, especially for those with kidney or stomach issues. Here's how to feel well and stay safe. How to tell if you're overdoing it. Scan the label of over-the-counter ibuprofen, and you'll see that adults and children 12 years and older are advised to take one or two if needed, 200-milligram tablets, caplets, or gel caplets every four to six hours while symptoms persist. And those taking the drug should not exceed 1,200 milligrams, or six pills, in 24 hours. But because doctors sometimes prescribe ibuprofen in much higher dosages, up to 3,200 milligrams a day, it can be hard to say how much is too much. This discrepancy is rooted in safety concerns. The Food and Drug Administration sets strict dosage limits for over-the-counter drugs because they may be taken by people with various risk factors, Dr. Tsarounis said. If you're unlikely to have an adverse reaction, your doctor may prescribe a higher dose. Even with over-the-counter ibuprofen, doctors will sometimes advise patients to take up to 3,200 milligrams per day for a short period, up to a week or two, because the anti-inflammatory effects are better at higher doses, said Lauren Haggerty, a clinical pharmacist at Johns Hopkins Medicine. This might happen after an injury or a surgery, she said. If you haven't consulted a doctor about how much is safe, or if you aren't certain about your risk factors, it's best not to exceed the recommended limit of 1,200 milligrams a day, Dr. Tserounis said. Since ibuprofen can cause an upset stomach, consider taking it with at least a few bites of food. Dairy or non-dairy alternative products are especially helpful, Dr. Tsarounis said. Be careful that you don't accidentally take more than intended. I have patients who don't know that Advil and generic ibuprofen are the same, so then they might take both, said Dr. Sarah Ruff, a physician at UNC Family Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Also, keep in mind that ibuprofen is sometimes added to certain cold medications like Sudafed PE, head congestion, and pain relief. So always read the ingredient list on medications before using them. When to be extra cautious. Ibuprofen belongs to a class of drugs known as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, which reduce pain and inflammation by blocking the activity of certain enzymes, Dr. Saurana said. This is why tamping them down often makes you feel better. But these enzymes also help maintain kidney and liver function and regulate the balance of fluids and electrolytes in your body, Dr. Tsarounis said. So taking ibuprofen can be dangerous for patients with kidney disease or failure, those with liver damage or cirrhosis, and people with conditions that put strain on their kidneys, like high blood pressure or heart failure. Those at high risk for these conditions, as well as for stomach ulcers, heart attacks, strokes, or bleeding problems, should talk with their doctors before taking ibuprofen, Dr. Haggerty said. The same goes if you're pregnant. Ibuprofen is not recommended at or after 20 weeks, according to the FDA, since it may, in rare cases, harm the fetus's kidneys. People who take medications such as diuretics, anticoagulants, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs, which are angiotensin receptor blockers, to manage cardiovascular issues should also be careful, Dr. Tsaranis said, because ibuprofen stresses the kidneys and the heart. To reduce these health risks, don't take the maximum recommended dose for more than a week or two at a time, Dr. Ruff warned. If you are needing it for more than two weeks, that's a good sign that you need to go to your doctor, she said. When taken for long periods, ibuprofen can also increase the risk of stomach ulcers, Dr. Ruff said. The drug inhibits enzymes that, among other things, aid in the production of mucus that lines and protects the stomach lining. So without these enzymes, the stomach becomes vulnerable to irritation and damage. And ironically, regular ibuprofen use among people with headache disorders, such as migraines, can cause rebound headaches for reasons doctors don't completely understand. It's really frustrating for patients because if they get into that situation, the only way to make it go away is to wean themselves off of all the pain relievers, Dr. Ruff said, and that's a painful process. Up next, can nose picking really contribute to dementia and Alzheimer's disease? An expert explains by Mary Walrath Holdridge from USA Today. Could picking your nose be bad for your brain? According to one report, it could be possible. However, an expert says, there's no need to panic if you engage in the bad habit. A recent review paper published in the journal Biomolecules explored the potential relationship between nose-picking and the development of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which may be related via neuroinflammation. Recent evidence suggests that neuroinflammation, or the swelling of nervous tissue, including tissue in the brain, may play at least a partial role in Alzheimer's disease. According to the paper's authors, beta amyloid, a protein believed to be a factor in causing Alzheimer's, may be produced by the brain in response to certain pathogens. One way for these pathogens to get into your nose and interact with your brain? A dirty finger up the nostril. While the idea of a simple action that, let's be honest, many of us partake in could potentially contribute to something as serious as Alzheimer's sounds scary, the conclusion should be handled with some skepticism. Here's what we know. Does picking your nose cause Alzheimer's? Heather M. Snyder, Ph.D., Vice President of Medical and Scientific Relations at the Alzheimer's Association, explained to USA Today that the report did not present new evidence obtained through an experiment, but was rather an overview of previously published studies in a growing area of Alzheimer's research. Specifically, the study of potential microbial viral contributions to Alzheimer's, or the idea that the presence of certain microorganisms or viruses could play a role in the development of the condition. The authors of this specific paper suggest, but do not prove, that microbes or viruses may enter the brain through the nose and could possibly be linked to the development of dementia or Alzheimer's. However, there is currently no definitive evidence of a cause-and-effect relationship, said Snyder. Alzheimer's is a complex disease with many contributing factors. There are likely multiple causes that contribute to the underlying biology of the disease, she said. Increasingly, we know the immune system plays an important role in the underlying biology of Alzheimer's. There are an increasing number of clinical trials targeting immune-related mechanisms, she said. What does cause dementia and Alzheimer's? Scientists have been working for years to get to the root of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Researchers have determined that it likely does not have one single cause, but develops as a result of multiple factors, including genetics, lifestyle, environment, and other medical conditions, Snyder said. Scientists have identified factors that may make an individual more vulnerable to Alzheimer's, she said. While some of these risk factors—age, family history, and heredity—can't be changed, emerging evidence suggests there may be other factors we can influence, she said. What can you do to help prevent dementia or Alzheimer's? While there is no guaranteed way to prevent the development of dementia or Alzheimer's, taking care of your health and maintaining good habits can help. Snyder pointed to the Alzheimer's Association list of 10 healthy habits for your brain, which include engage in regular exercise with activities that raise your heart rate and increase blood flow, challenge your mind with activities like learning new skills, taking classes, doing puzzles, or making art, stay in school and continue your education in adulthood as ongoing education reduces the risk of cognitive decline. Prevent injuries to your head and take precautions, such as wearing a helmet and seat belt when appropriate. Be smoke-free, as stopping at any time can lower the risk of cognitive decline. Control blood pressure and keep it in a healthy range by eating right, staying active, and taking medication if needed. Manage diabetes through a healthy lifestyle, which can also prevent type 2 diabetes from developing in the first place, and proper medical care. Get good quality sleep, which is important for brain health. Stay off screens before bed and practice good sleep hygiene. Eat right by including more vegetables, leaner meats and proteins, and foods that are less processed and lower in fat to your diet. Maintain a healthy weight through proper diet, exercise, and sleep. Should you keep picking your nose? As for nose picking... Snyder said that though we don't yet know whether or not there is a connection between nose-picking and Alzheimer's risk, practicing good hygiene is still good for your overall health. As such, refraining from picking your nose and washing your hands thoroughly and often are still the best practices everyone should employ for their overall health. Up next, how to apologize like you mean it. From the New York Times. Most of us can remember receiving an unsatisfying apology. A friend of mine recently got a text message after a Bumble date stood her up. S-R-Y, it read. He didn't even spell out the whole word, she told me. When my kid was in preschool, an email arrived in my inbox. Sorry your daughter was bitten, it said. The sender's child had done the biting. Why is it so hard to apologize? Why do so many of us get it wrong? Saying you're sorry involves vulnerability, said Lisa Leopold, a former associate professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, who researches apologies. We also have to admit our own wrongdoing, our own failings, she added, and that requires tremendous humility, she said. But it's worth making the effort, Leopold said. A meta-analysis of 175 studies found that apologies did indeed influence forgiveness. Other research suggests that apologies can benefit the giver as well as the receiver by reducing guilt, fostering self-compassion, and strengthening relationships. But not all apologies are equal. For a show of remorse to be truly effective, it should be focused on the other person's feelings and needs, not your own, said Karina Schumann, an associate professor of social psychology and head of the Conflict Resolution Lab at the University of Pittsburgh, who researches the topic. The ingredients of a successful apology can vary, but here are ones that many experts agree on. Express regret. Do not say, I want to apologize, or I would like to apologize, Leopold said. A lot of people use that language, she explained, but expressing a desire isn't as effective as apologizing. Instead, simply say, I apologize, or I'm sorry, she said. Using an I statement strengthens your apology by taking responsibility, Leopold said. I'm sorry for my outburst this morning, for example, is more effective than saying that shouldn't have happened. Explain, but keep it brief. Being specific about what you've done can make the other person feel understood, said Beth Polin, an associate professor of management at Eastern Kentucky University who studies apologies. But, she added, you should keep it sincere and short. Skip justifications and excuses, she said, because an apology should not be to make us feel better or defend our actions. And while you are explaining, Leopold said, avoid conditional words like but, which can weaken the apology. For example, I apologize for the delay, but I had multiple deadlines to meet. If is another conditional that helps us dodge responsibility. I apologize if I offended anybody, implies that there may have been no victims and hence no transgression, Leopold said. Acknowledge any harm you've caused. Dr. Pollan has found in her research that taking ownership is one of the most vital components of an apology. We really do care about someone admitting their wrongdoing, she said. And while it's tempting to say you didn't mean any harm, Leopold suggested keeping your intentions to yourself. People don't want to hear these justifications, she said, because it weakens the responsibility. Instead, convey exactly how your actions have affected or hurt the other person. This feeling of being understood is another critical factor in forgiveness, Dr. Schumann said. Say you'll try not to do it again. Reassure the person that you'll do your best not to repeat the offense, Dr. Poland said, adding that this builds back trust and confidence. But this step is often left out of apologies, she explained. People hope to not repeat an offense, but it can be difficult to put themselves on the line and make such a promise, she said. It's critical, though, Dr. Pollen said, when you explicitly say that you will try not to do something again, this looks to the future rather than the past and also reduces that nagging doubt, she said. Offer to Repair Pairing an apology with a vow to correct the wrongdoing is more likely to lead to forgiveness than the statement alone, Leopold said. Be specific about how you're going to make it up to the person, Dr. Poland said, adding that you can ask them for suggestions. Don't just tell yourself that the damage is done, she added. Maybe you can't repay in kind, she said, but there is almost always something that you can do. Ask for forgiveness, but let go of expectations. The final step, said Dr. Poland, is a gentle request for forgiveness. She recommended asking a collaborative question like, how can we get back to where we were before this happened? That invites the other person into that trust repair process, she said. You can say something like, I hope you'll forgive me, but it's important that you don't pressure someone to do so, said Dr. Schumann. Give them time and space to forgive, she said. And let them know that you desire their forgiveness not because you want to wriggle off the hook, she added, but because of how much you care about them, she said. Up next, ease stress to preserve memory, from Consumer Reports on Health. Adults with high stress levels were 37% more likely to develop memory problems than those with low stress, according to a study of 24,448 people ages 45 and up. Participants with chronic stress had the biggest memory declines over 11 years, while those whose stress was resolved had only a 3% drop. And the source is JAMA Network. And also from Consumer Reports on Health, cut your cancer risk in under four minutes a day. Getting at least 3.4 minutes of vigorous activity per day, like brisk walking or floor mopping, lowered the cancer risk for non-exercisers by up to 18% over 6.7 years, according to one study. Researchers say activity may help by reducing body fat, inflammation, and levels of certain hormones. And the source is JAMA Oncology. And why you must skip late-night snacks. Tend to snack at night? In a small study of overweight and obese adults, when they skipped breakfast, ate lunch and dinner, and snacked about four hours after dinner, they were twice as likely to have daytime hunger than when they ate the same amount of calories for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They also experienced a slower metabolism, lower levels of leptin, the satiety hormone, and the activation of a gene that encourages body fat storage. The source is the Journal Cell Metabolism. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.